0: Hey, guys, this is Kenan Thompson. I have a problem with you. Yes, you. None of y'all told me that AutoTrader has millions of new and used cars that I can shop from home. I thought we were friends. I put smiles on your face, but I'm not smiling. No one told me that with AutoTrader, a dealer can deliver cars to my home or that I could shop by price on AutoTrader. No one. Consider this friendship that you just learned we had officially over. Finally, it's easy. AutoTrader.
1: Love Target? Well, you're about to love it even more. Target's new Red Card Reloadable saves you 5% every Target trip, in-store and online, and doesn't require a bank account or credit check to get approved. Target.com slash Red Card to get all the details. Restrictions apply. Colorado has a story to tell. From Glenn Miller to Diane Reeves, from the astronauts to the Lumineers, The Colorado Music Experience collects and preserves the legacy of Colorado's rich music history. Serving as a resource for audio, visual, informational, and archival materials. Your host is G. Brown. Our guest is Otis Taylor, who has explored a singular path as an award-winning blues musician, a singer and multi-instrumentalist chronicling the African-American experience, never skirting around the tough subject matter. Raised in Denver and Boulder-based, he's recorded hundreds of songs and continues to play his trance blues around the world. Welcome, Otis. Thank you. You were born in Chicago, 1948, the son of a railroad man. Your folks came from the South to Chicago during the Great Migration?
0: Yeah. My father probably came in the 30s. He was born in 1915, so it took a little time. He went to New York City first, then he went to Chicago. But I don't know where he got the Pullman job. It was in Chicago or New York.
1: They were the attendants who carried baggage and served the passengers, assisting Mm -hmm. with various duties. That was arguably the most instrumental job in developing the black middle class.
0: It had a lot to do with telling blacks down south, They're kind of like the CIA of the blacks. They'd smuggle in literature, and that way they could find out to go north to get jobs. You couldn't get these northern papers in the south. The Pullman people would smuggle them in.
1: Your father and your mother were both big into music. Your father in particular, a big jazz buff, bebop. It's like (laughs) things you
0: did that you shouldn't have done. I want to throw all my father's records away. I'm that guy. I'm an antique dealer. And I'm the guy who would go there and buy those things for dirt cheap. But at that time, I didn't. I was kind of messed up. (laughs) That's all I can say. (laughs) (laughs) All these 70s are too heavy. I can't deal with this and all these records. But I remember the music, you know.
1: It was a family tragedy that motivated your family's move to Denver? On my mother's side.
0: My mother's brother was killed, shot to death in a crap game. So maybe he was a gangster. Who gets shot in a crap game? So were they robbing it or was it a hit? Something wasn't right. He was probably murdered. He was a tough guy. I have a picture of him at home. He had eyes like me, light color eyes. His name was Andrew Bell. My older guys go, oh, you look just like Andrew Bell, your eyes. He was tough.
1: You've been a self-described outlier for pretty much your entire life. See, that's the whole thing. My whole family was. It wasn't just me. Understood. Yeah. But a guy on a unicycle wearing sandals in 1964.
0: I used to make my shoes. They look like little kid shoes, like things some kind of giant would wear, all tacked together. I had
1: a pair in the basement someplace, but I don't know where they are now. Will you paint the picture of Denver at the time in terms of minority demographics,
0: We had manual high school. East had a lot of black kids when I was going to school, too. There's a lot of black people. The Hispanics were on the west side north side. A lot of Italians were on the north side. I don't know. Okay. (laughs) You can look at history after you grew up, but you weren't thinking about it when you were a kid. I was raised in a counterculture. My parents smoked pot. They hung out with jazz musicians. So I was already on the edge. And then the counterculture got psychedelicized with the kids. And then it became political and it just grew. So, my attitude about the counterculture was I was always an outsider with all these people. Like with the Indian jewelry, I was wearing hip hop moccasins in high school where they wear out so quick I put cardboard in the shoes because the soles were very thin. So, the counterculture hit me in a different way. And then the whole folk scene was kind of a counterculture from beat to folk, then to commercialism of young kids and psychedelics and drugs. And I think the drugs pushed a lot of stuff on there.
1: At some point, you weren't just listening to music, but you had the drive to create your own. You found a home at the Denver Folklore Center, Harry Tuft's legendary headquarters for acoustic music. Yeah. What was your first instrument?
0: There's a myth that it was a ukulele, but it wasn't was my brother's ukulele that my brother gave my mother. I broke the string, and I used to walk by the Folklore Center when I go to junior high school, so I knew it was there. So when I broke the string, I went in, and somehow I never came out, <laughs> basically. <laughs> went down to the Folklore Center Down 17th Avenue People sitting around, they don't stand. People sitting around, they don't stand
1: did you take lessons per se
0: harry would let me bug the teachers and they taught me for free and harry didn't say anything like they might have a lesson at 6 30 and then a lesson at seven but maybe if the lesson's only half an hour you could kind of slide in and hey show me that song and they'd be sitting around and you just sort of Hustle, do lessons. He could have said, you can't do that. But he let me do it, so I learned how to play banjo and guitar a lot, to a certain degree. I never was good at learning things. I was very slow.
1: Folklore Center was not only a place where you could get lessons, you could buy records, there was instrument repair. Just as importantly, you got to see performances by yeah. folk blues masters, Mississippi Fred McDowell.
0: Sunhouse, he played at DU. Harry promoted the show. I heard Johnny Revelator. I thought that was so cool.
2: Who's that writing? John Revelator. Tell me who's that writing? John Revelator. Well who's that writing? John Revelator wrote the book of the seven sea.
1: You know, this was an interesting down down time as musicologists day. would have it. They famously explained that rock musicians appropriated the blues. People like the Rolling Stones, Led mm-hmm. Zeppelin, taking Muddy Waters and Howl and Wolf material and the like, and they electrified it, amplified yes. it, and yeah. that's rock and roll. They became stars. The astute music fans sought out the originals, and so you had B.B. King playing to auditoriums filled with white kids. My theory is a black man,
0: except for the jazz guys, and we always call them the jazz intelligentsia, the black people are always on the avant-garde of something new. They don't like the old as much. They do hip-hop, white guys do hip-hop. They do rock, white guys do rock. You know what I mean? They're always trying to be on the cutting edge. And so in the black world, things become old-fashioned. When I was around the old blues guys, they really liked that I was around. And they talked to me because the young kids weren't listening to them. Maybe some places in Chicago, but on your average, no. They wanted to listen to Martha and Vandellas. When I was young, Bob Marcus, we hitchhiked to the Berkeley Folk Festival and I am sitting in the steps talking to Fred McDowell. You know, I'm trying to hustle a lesson. Can you give me that? He goes, I'll give you a lesson tomorrow. Well, during that tomorrow and that process, I saw this girl that's really hot, and she says she's going to this concert. i like, I didn't show up for the lesson. Now, see, to me, it was like all the old guys were just old black guys. I got offered lessons, and sometimes I didn't show up because they weren't like these folk heroes that they are now. So my perspective was totally different when I'm hanging out with them. I mean, I liked them, and they were really cool, but you have a different perspective. And now they're like these super legends. People brag on who they knew and stuff like that. Sometimes I tell people I'm not a historian. I went signed with the English record company. It didn't work out, but they were all historians. They could tell you who played in all this record and all this stuff. And I just thought, I may not know much about the blues, but I'm good at being black. My perspective was just different.
1: It was part of my culture. You led a couple of bands drifted to boulder you worked at a legendary retail location the cotangent
0: worked to the hip bone too in denver the first mod store and it was owned by fashion bar there was a mod shop with a record store
1: you built a business model that was unprecedented for the area you would find vintage clothing yeah buy it for a nickel and then resell it for, for a lot a lot
0: <laughs> <laughs> i was in a smart business that's what it's called
1: i, like I was a rag it. merchant Given what was going on in Boulder at the time, and Denver to a degree, you had to be the subject of speculation in terms of being a,
0: a drug dealer? Well. No, I wasn't. I wasn't. I know you weren't. I didn't do drugs. My mother went to jail for selling heroin, so I was the white sheep of the family. I didn't like drugs. My mother was an alcoholic. I didn't like booze. So I was really straight. The whole drug thing, because I came from a drug-oriented family, didn't impress me.
1: You up and left for London and got a record contract with Blue Horizon Records that ultimately didn't work out.
0: They didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) They sent me to a ranger. I didn't even know what a recording studio was. There was no communication. I couldn't deal with it. So I went
1: home. Is it accurate that you also did some modeling
0: over in London? Yeah, but nothing happened. But I'm on a poster, a really cool poster. Black Boys Are Bisexual. That was the name of the agency. They had a big coming-out party in Chelsea, at the Chelsea Town Hall, and then nothing happened. No one got any work. I got a great photo out of it. My girls fight over who's going to get the photo.
1: You came back to Boulder, where you played with Tommy Bolin, Zephyr, the Fornicators. Tommy was the acclaimed rock guitarist who was rebounding from all the personnel changes and business chicanery that was going on in Zephyr. Candy and David Gibbons, part of that band as well. The fornicators, led by Mick Manresa and Harold Fielden from Flash Cadillac, you guys played 50 style rock and roll out in North Boulder at Arts oh, Bar and Grill just true. for yeah. fun. It was great. And you played mandolin. I played mandolin in maracas. <laughs> in a 50s oldies singing, band. Backup singing. <laughs>
0: okay. Basically, I didn't do anything. I just looked cool. <laughs> oh, and then I'd bring my motorcycle up for leader of the pack.
2: And I fell for
0: Just put a lot of smoke in the room. It was really stupid. It was the most fun band I ever had been in. The Eagles got left at the door. I mean playing fifties music in seventies, old fashioned, outdated. It was very hip. But only Harold knew it was hip. (laughs) It was very hip now. We look back, that was like so so progressive. But people had fun.
1: And you also played with Zephyr in terms of performance, never on record, but yes, that's interesting. David was the bass player in Zephyr.
0: He became the guitar player, yeah, that's Uh true. About three years or so, three and a half, yeah.
1: And then in 1977, you retreated from the music business, a sabbatical that lasted almost two decades. You were a dealer of high-end antiques.
0: Yeah. Antique dealer. Don't say dealer, then antique. Say <laughs> <laughs> antique dealer.
1: You, you were uh, starting
0: from scratch? Well, I was in- always buying and selling American Indian art. Keep on going the Goodwills and buying Indian rugs for cheap, and then one day they became very valuable. So I just headed the curve on that one, too, once. I had to go down to Arizona and work with the dealers for the Butch Haircuts, the ex-Marine antique you know, Indian art traders. It was pretty interesting that I never got killed traveling uh, through the Southwest. I would never do that now.
1: One other career aspect, you organized and coached and sponsored one of the first all-black bicycle racing
0: when teams. One of the first ones in Colorado. There was another one in New York City, yeah. We had white too, but we emphasized emphasis on the black kids. We did. We had two kids on the national A and B team, which was really unheard of. There was three on the national team that are African-Americans at that time in history. People don't know it happened, but blacks were dominating for a couple of years on the track in a certain race. It's never been done again. I just kind of did it because I had a girlfriend time who used to bicycle race, and the Swedish team would come stay at our house, and I got a book on bicycle racing and found out about Major Marshall Taylor. I thought, oh, one of the greatest bicycle racers was black. So I thought, black should race. I get these ideas in my head, and I do these things, and it
1: cost me a lot of money later. (laughs) During that time, did you put your musical past in a box and on a shelf? I played once,
0: one time in the 80s, and then I didn't play till the 90s. When I stop doing something, it just, I don't know, just leaves me. And I just kind of walk away, you know?
1: So in 1996, Buchanan's, a coffee shop on University Hill in Boulder, asked you to provide live music for its opening, and suddenly you're back in it again. Yeah, but
0: Buck was one of the sponsors of my bicycle team in the 80s. Okay. And that's how that came about. He called me up because I want to get a PA system. I said, PA, I'll find you some guys and we'll come play for you. And I did. And then there I go again. He never came out just kept on going
1: your first solo recording blue-eyed monster was a rather immediate result you had a fantastic band kenny passarelli played bass and acted as producer his resume includes stints in the 70s with elton john joe walsh dan Fogelberg, stephen stills eddie turner on lead guitar was and is the purveyor of a real unique stinging ethereal sound There's been some acrimony over the years, three pretty strong personalities there, but I hope you can acknowledge that there was a fantastic amount of talent in that line. Oh,
0: yeah. I mean, Kenny taught me a lot of things about music and producing, but he was one of my biggest clients, see, in the antique business. So whenever I'd go to show him stuff, we'd sit around and jam. So we had been playing together off stage for a long time, jamming all the time. We just sort of gelled. I don't deny that part.
1: The music you created didn't have much to do with the standard twelve-bar blues, the "Woke Up This Morning" lyrical cliches. Some of your songs touched on matters of the heart, romantic betrayal, or whatever. You think so, you
0: don't—that's interesting. You don't. Everybody talks about my, my body count, how many people I kill on a record.
1: Well, that's the stuff that gets the attention. Oh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's really sweetie. I didn't think anybody cared. <laughs> No, hey, I've written some nice, sweet songs. Nobody cares. <laughs> I got dirt on my soul. You got dirt on your floor. Man down damn-
1: Most of your songs center on storytelling, peppered with social commentary about the African American experience. And some of it's pretty vitriolic. Your style got labeled as trance blues.
0: Oh, I did that. That's a funny story because I had a good publicist. What are we going to call this? I don't know. Alt blues? I don't know. Indie blues? Nah. That's, we said, oh, my trance. Yeah, trance. And so we started, in the, all the press releases put out trance. So for the first five years, the writers would go, so-called trans blues artist otis taylor and then 10 years later it boom they didn't like that i made up what i wanted to be they wanted to label me the writers
1: the glib antecedent would be john lee hooker's one chord boogie material
0: yeah but Whoop did a lot of one chords see mississippi hill country people do one chord
1: was an amazing sound, drumless, but had as much drive as any groove.
0: A lot of early banjo stuff was going to be one or two chords, or you wouldn't even have to change a chord, you could just play. So it comes from more African roots music than it comes from the Delta.
1: You got a fellowship that had to put some wind in your sails, the Sundance Composer's yeah, Lab yeah. in Utah. In 2000, the White African album was a breakthrough, at least yeah, in terms of public for- perception. You took on race relations, social injustice, you sang about the legacy of lynching. You had a personal connection to that.
0: Yeah, step-great-grandfather, yeah. It was Lake, Mississippi, I found out later. I got the town wrong, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> they came to the door It took him, they took him away them from, they hung them from the highest tree.
1: C. Handy Award, a blues award for Best New Artist. I believe you were 52 at the time. (laughs) You've since done 15 albums in total. I'm astounded by your prolific nature. 2012, Truth is Not Fiction refined your trance blues sound. Mm -hmm. But I was always enamored that there was an electric, psychedelic blues component to that.
0: Pedals. That sounds like a funny word. Pedals you play on your guitar. Uh, Here's a story... The guy worked at the Folklore Center. I got him to play bass and I played guitar and banjo. And we had a little band called Otis and Otis's Bass Player. And we went and played the family dog we opened for American Standard. So, Mac Ferris, who was one of my banjo teachers and a great musician, a band called Rainy Days in the early days of rock, but he was the bluegrass guy, and he gave me a fiddle. So, I learned how to kind of bow it, but I couldn't fret. And I'm tone deaf and I couldn't tune it. So, then I brought a fuzz tone and I ran it through my violin. And Tommy would tune it for me before I go on stage. And I played it, and it was just psychedelic. I only played two notes, but I had a really good right hand, so it sounded like a train. And this one guy walked up to me and said, Man, you're the greatest violin player ever heard. And I said, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> I just stopped because it was so jive, but it was really cool. So when I say the pedal, I started with the pedals in the 60s through a violin. I call it pedals. as loops and electronics.
1: Double V, an album that featured your daughter Cassie on the cover, Mm -hmm. but she was already a huge presence in your band on bass and vocals. Did you encourage her to have a musical career?
0: I kind of did, but didn't hold. (laughs) But she made a couple records. She's really good. She can just walk on stage, play bass, don't have to practice, sing, don't have to practice and steal the show. She can still do that. It's like having a kid who can throw a baseball 105 miles per hour who wants to be a goalie on a hockey team. It's just (laughs) nothing you can do about it. You know, It's just the way it is.
1: The Definition of a Circle was recorded with Gary Moore, mm-hmm. who I always thought was perhaps the greatest blues rock guitarist that England ever produced. You caught him at a point of his career where he hadn't gotten his commercial due. Yeah, Never did. He's no longer yeah. with us. When I was touring in
0: England, we were playing in Brighton at this club. We were signing CDs, and this guy looks really gruff, tough guy, right? And he comes up and goes, yeah, I'm Gary Moore. I play guitar. I've been opening for B.B. King. Yeah... I opened for B.B. King. I don't know if everybody opens for B.B. King. And he's talking about me. I, you just blew me away. Every time I thought about something you should do, you did it. He just, you just blew me away. And yeah. He goes, I thought he was going to rob me to steal my guitar. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, oh, um, yeah, this place I mumbled. Mumbling comes in handy when you want to. He goes, Here, here's my number. Take my number. Call me. Right? He's really a really super shy person. So he goes to get out of the club. And the promoter goes, that's Gary Moore. That's Gary Moore. he gets all excited. And then they tell me about Gary Moore. So I call him the next day and I say, Gary Moore, the soda's tale. Yeah, yeah. I heard you're famous. Why don't you come play on my record? He laughed, you know. <laughs> he played on my record. He played on three records. I did six tours with Gary. Now I learned about tour managers and all this stuff. Two trucks and two tour buses, and you go through Europe. So it was kind of fun to be at that level. I learned how to be a Prima Donna It was really cool. <laughs> We're not the
1: the banjo was your album that traced mm-hmm. the roots of the instrument to Africa, not Appalachia, as it's gone down historically.
0: I was at a NAM show. I was doing pretty well. I had a guitar named after me, and one of my banjo teachers was Mike Kropp, and he was a distributor in the musical instrument business. So we had dinner. I said, Mike, why didn't you tell me the banjo came from Africa? I was, of I just didn't think of it. It would have changed my whole perspective about playing the banjo. I was playing an instrument that white people hated me, so I sort of stopped playing. And I couldn't go down south at the time, and the band called the Dillard saw me playing, and said, you're really good, you should go down south, you could win a banjo contest. I thought, no, I could get killed. So I didn't want to play it in public as much. And then I came back, and I was doing a workshop, a Port Townsend workshop with John Jackson, an album, Young Blood Heart, and that's when the idea came to my head. And then I had to call certain people and get them to play my records too. I couldn't have done that project 10 years before that. Never would have happened because I didn't have enough notoriety. Spoke to the wrong person that day. Went back home and hid away.
1: My World is Gone in 2013 addressed the treatment of Native Americans by the government. Fantasizing About Being Black addressed the historical trauma of African-American experience. You worked with Ron Miles, the acclaimed yeah, great. jazz cornetist who was here in Denver. Best
0: kept secret.
1: Jerry Douglas on mm-hmm. Dobro from the country and bluegrass world. You've enlisted amazing musicians from Warren Haynes of the Allman Brothers to Bill Nershey of String Cheese Incident.
0: As you get on the circuit, you meet people. I got Kev Moe to play on the banjo record and Guy Davis and Corey Harris and Alvin and Don Vappi, who's really good. So as you go along and meeting people through your career, but I've called
1: people and they didn't call me back. <laughs> You are an educator, as is your wife, Carol. The two of you created the Writing the Blues program. Well, she
0: created it, and then I took credit.
1: That's how it goes. (laughs) Sharing the blues genre's heritage and history, you went everywhere from elementary schools to universities. Yeah. And the cool thing is that you encouraged writing, not just going over history.
0: Yeah. I want people to know that everybody has a blues. These kids, if they relate to their sadness, then they can relate to the blues.
1: In your hand. Oh, hey yes, with oh, yes hey covering girl. Hey Joe, a concept, song suite, an oft-covered song that you did maybe the best version yeah. of. So, Yeah, it
0: was one of the best-selling records I had in Europe, but I lost my record company because I thought it was too avant-garde. <laughs> it's like, if you want to be Jesus, you will get crucified. I couldn't explain it to people. What are you doing? Well, I'm going to go from both ends and come to the middle. It was hard. It was the hardest work I ever did, but I think it was really interesting.
1: You've received innumerable rave reviews and accolades. You have been honored with displays in a couple of very impressive places. You are in the National Museum of African American History and Culture, the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. yeah. The other great museum, the new National Museum of African-American Music in Nashville.
0: That was a big surprise, because I was talking to Kevin on the phone about this Kenny Wave Shepherd thing, about the Confederate flag, and he's on the board, and he never bothered to tell me I was in the museum.
1: The Trans Blues Festival that you and Carol created, not only assembling great performers, but doing weekend-long workshops,
0: you know, conducting long. instruction <laughs> for people. Yeah. It was hard, yeah. Just tell people how to truly play together, not just play. People can play in the same room, or they can play together. And the great bands play together. Whether they want to or not, they know how to play
1: together, and they do, and that makes them great. You've been at this a while. There's now a spike in our evolving climate regarding race in our country.
0: Are you going to really wind me up now, buddy? uh, (laughs) I am. I just feel like we're in the most dangerous part of American history for freedom than ever, ever, ever. We've gone backwards, and I don't know what's going to happen. Am I nervous? Yeah, very nervous. But then I think, no matter what, i got to figure out how to survive. That's scary. I've been seeing it coming for about 15 years. When Obama won, it changed. Something clicked in people. Too many Michael Jordans, too many Oprahs, too many Kobe's, just too many black people with too much money and too many white people with no money.
1: You've played clubs and festivals around the world, arguably achieving more success in Europe than in America. Any musician says they get no credit in their hometown. Do you think you've changed that narrative? To your... Not that much. No? Not
0: that much. Even in the blues world, they don't get that much credit. Once the director of the Blues Foundation said, we don't have a category for you, which really hurt me, because if you Google blues and it was Taylor, you see thousands upon thousands of articles and I couldn't believe that they could say that because I've helped the blues. I've brought the blues to a lot of foreign countries in North Africa. I've been to Libya, Tunisia, Russia. and But that's life. You can look at two things in life. You can look at the things you didn't get, or you can look at the things you did get. And I got a lot more than a lot of musicians got. I got the Sundance Fellowship. I got in movies. I got the Michael Mann Award, <laughs> I call it, where I made a lot of money off the movies and but when it comes to notoriety in my own state or notoriety in the blues, except for over in Europe, it's a little weak. But that's OK. Sometimes it's better to be the underdog, you know. Oh, I'm really crumpy. I'm getting good at it, too.
1: <laughs> Practice makes perfect. Yeah. you know. Like, What's your favorite musician's joke, Otis?
0: What's a happy musician? What? A wife with two jobs.
1: The Colorado Music Experience is a nonprofit educational and cultural organization relying on financial support from music enthusiasts to fund its initiatives. To learn more, please visit colomusic.org. C O C-O-L-O, L O music. Org. Terrapin Care Station is a Boulder based, vertically integrated, consumer focused
0: cultivator, processor, and provider of high quality medical and recreational cannabis products. Terrapin loves music and is proud to partner with Colorado Music Experience to educate the public on everything great about our state's music history. It adds significant cultural value across Colorado, solidifying our state's position as a leader. Follow Terrapin on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit terrapincarestation.com.
1: 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only